Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk markets here and kind of where we go from here. What should we expect maybe from this Federal Reserve next week after we've had this move by the ECB? Uh, bring in Jay Hatfield. He's the CEO, founder, and portfolio manager at Infrastructure Capital Advisors. And Jay, um, let's just start with Europe and the ECB. I mean, they're still, like the U.S. Federal Reserve, still very much on this inflation-fighting path, raising their benchmark rate by 50 uh, basis points, where a lot of people said, maybe pause, maybe just 25, but no. Thanks, Paul, for having me in again. Uh, you have to keep in mind the European system is um, radically different than the U.S. So they were way behind our Fed, a full percentage yeah. point behind our Fed. And also their um, inflation is worse because of their natural gas crisis. It's come down, but it's still a huge right. problem. And then thirdly, all their banks are essentially money center banks. Like our money center banks are killing it right now. They're getting all these deposits in. And keep in mind that that's free money right now. So that's the real problem with our system is that smaller banks are losing deposits and that's every dollar that goes out costs them roughly 5%. So you're paying 50 basis points or zero if it's a demand deposit. And then you borrow from the Fed at LIBOR plus a spread. And so their earnings are getting smashed as we speak. And that's the core issue. And that's why we've been calling for a rate cut to reduce that, um, the inversion in the yield curve. So when you compare that to then what the Federal Reserve is doing, the read-through, I think one of the takeaways from the ECB is simply uh, that they hiked regardless of the chaos for Credit Suisse. If Credit Suisse is a bigger bank and a bigger risk than, say, SVB is, which I think is the consensus, then does that then insinuate the Federal Reserve is going to stick to 25 or 50 or whatever the calls were pre-SVB? Well, that's certainly possible because they have shown zero ability to process real-time data. <laughs> so, and specifically, I would point to oil, which is something that we uh, Sass, focus coming on. from Jay Hatfield, <laughs> live on broadcast. Um, so the two key indicators of inflation are housing and oil. Oil has come down 17% since the financial crisis started, mm -hmm. the bank run started. And what I don't think the Fed appreciates, which is strange because they have research papers that, that demonstrate this, there's a 5% bleed through of energy prices to core. In fact, if you look in the 70s and draw a line where the two gigantic uh, increases occurred, so 200 and 150, core went up, shot up within three or four months. So this is not, this research paper just proved it, um, you know, through, through econometric models, but you can see it in the data. So now we have a significant deflation 
CPI-R is dropping at a 2% annual rate. And now if you layer in this depreciation in oil, uh, we're headed for a pretty significant deflation. I mean, essentially, we're in deflation right now. It's just not going to show up in the indices for a year because they're lagged by a year. So, you know, do you think this banking situation here in the U.S., this run on these handful of banks, will prompt the Fed or should it prompt the Fed to pause here? If not, maybe be a Absolutely little bit more Absolutely pause. They, that's what they should. Well, they should really cut, right? <clears throat> but they are behind every, almost every <clears throat> market participant would agree they're behind the curve. So the best case is probably that they, they pause. They definitely should not raise rates. That would be a, a disaster. And again, they're in a much different situation where they were already raised much higher and we have a, a bigger inversion than they do in Europe. Jay, one of the comment piece of commentary that came out of, I believe, Nomura off the Fed FDIC move this past weekend was that's essentially stimulative. And you might then see the Fed end quantitative tightening as a result. Do you view this kind of banking fallout and what has the Fed has been prompted to do as stimulative? Well, it, in the long run, it will be stimulative. And that's one reason that we were saying before this banking crisis that the market would be weak during this period and that we would be in 3,800 to 4,200. That's without a banking crisis. Yeah. So the fact that that <laughs> range is still working is remarkable. But there's a simple reason for it. <clears throat> um, long-term rates are plummeting. And it's not actually true, but everybody trades tech stocks like they have a longer duration. They actually don't, but they still trade it that way. They're all, all publicly traded companies roughly have 22-year durations. But they're also a safe haven. They don't borrow money. They have tremendous cash reserves. And um, they're very powerful companies. So um, they're being used as safe haven. They dominate the market. So if you look, there's, there's an enormous um, rotation into large cap tech safety and out of things that are related to financials, including REITs, which is irrational because rates are dropping. That's good for them. They're well capitalized. So um, that's why the market's not crashing. But underneath it, it really is crashing. Like if you look at the regional banks, for obviously. What, from your perspective, what are we seeing with these regional banks, the, the SVBs, the maybe even the uh, FRC today, the Signature Bank? Are these one-offs or they have a systemic background to them, do you think? Well, I think it's, it's not fully systemic because as I mentioned, money center banks and super regionals are going to benefit. And that, that's the dominant portion of the banking system. But, and this is going to be an issue for politicians, hopefully, is that their banks are getting crushed. So the community banks and the regular regional banks, because if you think about a CFO, so there's sort of an implicit guarantee, but it's kind of like the, the commercial sort of is not good enough. Yep. So if your CFO and a bank, I won't mention any names, certain bank closes, <clears throat> like my CFO called me and said, hey, should we move all of our reserves? Because you have to make that call because you're going to be fired. If you said, oh, yeah, I know Silicon Valley Bank it happened, but we thought the, F the FDIC would step in and they decided not to for political reasons, you're fired. So you have to move your uh, reserves you're checking, spread it out, and you're going to move it to super, you probably don't want 50 or 500 accounts, so you're going to move it to Money Center Bank, where then you're not going to get fired. Like if Citigroup goes bankrupt, you're not going to get fired. So there's going to be an ongoing run on small banks. It's a huge problem because they're going to become unprofitable. They're going to get downgraded by the rating agencies, which Silicon, saw, that precipitated yeah. Silicon Valley's demise, along with the worst equity offering ever yes. executed in human <laughs> history. 
I don't, I'm, I'm certain there's never been an equity offering that resulted in bankruptcy. Right. Like, you don't need to do a post meeting to see if that was a good That sounds like a Morgan offering. Stanley banker <laughs> pitching against Goldman Sachs. <laughs> don't no, say that no, too loudly. No picking any, on any particular firms, but right. that is the worst equity offering in the history of humankind. Well, quick question here, and, and forgive my ignorance on this. That doesn't necessarily seem like a new concept here. Naturally, that if you want, the bigger banks are going to be safer because essentially they're too big to fail, especially since uh, 08. Why did a lot of folks invest in these smaller banks anyway? What's the incentive there? Well, I, I think that there's also too much heat being put on the San Francisco Fed because no stress test ever said you're going to lose all of your deposits in 24 hours. Yeah. <clears throat> there's never been a situation like that. Even like during the financial crisis, we did guarantee the deposits. So we created a system by accident where having this 250 limit, which has never hasn't been increased, and there have been bills to increase it, really created a tinderbox that exploded. It's just like mortgage, the, yeah. the mortgage market. There's always something that hasn't been addressed that a too rapid Fed uh, tightening cycle will expose. And there's been like 10 of them even in my career. You know, if you think about junk bond crisis, uh, SNL crisis, commercial real estate crisis in the early 80s, there's always, oh, tech tech crash after that tightening cycle. Mm -hmm. So this is just the flaw that should have been fixed, should have guaranteed all deposits. It won't even cost him much because you get a low, you can have a lower rate on more deposits. So it, you know, would, it would hurt the money center banks and it would benefit the regional banks. All right. So what are you, what do, what, 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 what do you think folks should be doing in the market today? There's a lot of cross currents here with the Fed, um, with this banking crisis, if, if you will. Is this just stay on the sidelines here? Because I'm looking at the market here and it, it's kind of hanging in there. Yeah, know? so that's the rotation going on. So I'm sure, um, well, I have the S&P up, but I'm sure the tech stocks are starting to rip and offset the- Yeah, NASDAQ's up a little bit here. Yeah, right. So I do think that ultimately this is bullish because assuming the Fed, but I would wait to have the Fed pause, yeah. <clears throat> um, not raise rate, and hopefully good commentary about even being willing to cut. And then that will take the key, the key overhang on the market, which I've said before uh, on your shows, is that as the Fed, because they were just completely out to lunch and thought it was fine to raise rates at this unprecedented level. So now, because the Fed regulates banks, they can't ignore it. You know, they're getting the calls from the FDIC, they're getting the calls from Congress. And so it's not like CSFB that none of our, you know, our politicians. So they have to focus on this and presumably they will uh, consider rate increases. They won't be at their normal level of being behind by about 12 months. They can't afford to be behind 12 months here. They have to cut rates more quicker than that. Well, doesn't that factor in things like any of the retail data, any of the Chinese story, any of the eco stuff that we, I feel like have been paying attention to as these tailwinds for inflation in the face of this banking fallout, does the rest matter? Not really, no. They, the, that's why it's it's important to focus on those two elements that drove inflation. I'm talking high inflation, by the way, not one versus two versus three. Yeah. Is housing, 42% of core. And energy is only six. And keep in mind, natural gas prices are at 80% in the last four months. Highly deflationary. But every business in the United States uses energy. And so that's the key um, supply shock. It's not necessarily the ports or chips. I mean, chips was a problem because you can't build cars. But the, the, those are the key drivers, and you should look at oil. It's both an indicator of inflation, and it's also an indicator of the potential for a global recession. 
Jay, we can't let you go without getting uh, kind of your thoughts on energy right here. I see WTI crude oil down uh, again today. We're at $66 a barrel. What's kind of the next 12, 18 months? What are you looking for in the energy space? Well, b before the, the financial crisis, we were at 75 to 95 on WTI because you do have a recovery in China. Um, you do have a pretty robust U.S. economy, which is shocking, but it's because of the pandemic. And you still do have an energy crisis or at least an energy deficit in Europe. So those are all supportive factors. But um, investors treat oil as a risk asset, and this is a risk-off environment, so you're going to crash below, well below our, our level. <clears throat> and so it's all bets are off until we get clarity on the Fed and possibly maybe a guarantee of all deposits. I mean, that's going to be hard to get through Congress, but that's what's needed. All right, Jay, great stuff. Uh, really appreciate it. As always, Jay Hatfield, CEO, founder, and portfolio manager at Infrastructure Capital Advisors, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. All right, let's get back over to Europe a little bit, get a sense of kind of what the feeling is here with the ECB, with Credit Suisse. We could do that with Dr. Vanya Stravyakeva, professor of economics at the London Business School. Um, doctor, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start with the European Central Bank. Uh, they came out with a 50 basis point increase. Given all that's going on over there with the banking situation, and namely Credit Suisse, do you think that was a mistake? Should they have paused or maybe just raised the rate 25 basis points? What do you think? So thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think actually they did the right thing. Given the numbers for inflation, they have to establish credibility at this point. And I think the main concern in Europe right now is to get inflation under control. I'm less worried about solvency issues with the banks in Europe at this point. And I think they probably are thinking the same way. Of course, there will be liquidity issues uh, on the horizon, which is what we're seeing with Credit Suisse, potentially other banks, uh, but they're ready to provide a backstop. For example, the Swiss National Bank did uh, the same for Credit Suisse. Of course, ECB can do that for the Eurozone banks. So I think treating it at the moment as a liquidity rather than a solvency crisis is the right approach. Regulation is quite strict, especially for the large banks um, in Europe. So Credit Suisse is very well regulated. 
for example, you know, the, the one correct thing that was done by Switzerland and also the UK was ring fencing the retail banking of the large banks. So both the UK and Switzerland realized after the global financial crisis that these countries do not have the fiscal capacity to bail out their massive banks. So ring fencing the retail bank, which is essential for the functioning of the economy, essentially is giving them the freedom to not worry too much about having to put in massive bailouts. And then liquidity can be dealt with in many ways, such as providing um, loans against the face value of the collateral, which is what the Fed started doing, uh, so that they don't have to worry about the decrease in the valuations of um, long-term government debt. Professor, Professor, I'm curious about the timeline here. It feels like this banking fallout, uh, to your point, to Paul's point as well, has kind of thrown the idea of the energy crisis, this kind of multi-year recession we were expecting in the UK, out the window, to what extent are those still the factors that the BOE and the ECB have to be watching? Well, so the problems in the UK are separate because they have to deal with the consequences of Brexit as well, mismanagement of the economy for many, many years, sadly. Um, so we are seeing that in the news, the, the public sector is collapsing in the UK. Uh, it, we are seeing strikes daily in the news. Um, so those issues are not going away. Th those are structural issues that governments will have to deal with. But getting inflation under control is absolutely crucial because if we think that high interest rates are a problem for the banking sector, imagine having high interest rates for a very long period of time because we cannot get inflation under control. Potentially, the problems will be even more severe, particularly for the mortgages, of course. Uh, so Europe and the UK, the majority of the mortgages are floating rate mortgages. And that, that that's where the real problem will be because a lot of the borrowers might not be able to soon start repay their mortgages and, and, and that will generate a recession down the road. So the longer the high interest rates uh, remain, which they will if we don't get inflation under control, the bigger the cost um, on anyone that has a mortgage in Europe and the UK. And that's where the real recession is going to come. We're getting a little bit of uh, news. I just want to announce to our, our international audience here, JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley in talks to bolster First Republic. This, of course, was the next bank that was expected to kind of get taken down with Signature with Silicon Valley Bank. This is according to reports from the Wall Street Journal. You are seeing FRC, those shares, uh, pair some of those losses, still down 26%, but certainly off the lows of down about 30%. Professor Vanya, I want to bring you back in here, not to talk about First Republic, but perhaps a similar situation with Credit Suisse as well. Do the woes in the European banking sector go away if someone takes over parts of Credit Suisse? Well, so the problem with Credit Suisse is effectively they could never gain their footing after the global financial crisis. They couldn't figure out what type of bank there will be in the sense that they were a massive bank, the asset management division um, and the wealth management divisions who are a big part of the bank. However, they're not competitive. The fees that they were charging couldn't compete with the Black Rocks and the vanguards of the world and essentially the, the decrease in fees due to the advancement of ETFs. So I, I think that's a structural problem. So more generally, people compare the stampede of depositors from banks now to a classic bank run. I think that's not correct. So the, fu the fundamental problem here is not about having deposit insurance that's not credible or insufficient deposit insurance, as governments are clearly willing to back depositors in full, as the Fed has shown. It's about final investors waking up and realizing there are alternatives to bank deposits that can give them both liquidity and much higher return. The banking sector will have to shrink. So Credit Suisse has been experiencing that through the asset management division, but this will be true for your standard depositors as well, because many banks will not be able to afford to offer high interest rates on depositors. 
right? So this is because on their assets, then they will not be able to make the interest rates that depositors can make just by purchasing debt, government debt at this point. I think that's the big problem. And, and the trend of bank disintermediation had already started and the rate hikes together with the SVB collapse and the negative news around Credit Suisse are just precipitating the adjustment. Yes, there'll be some casualties along the way, but the old bank business model is simply not sustainable in the new environment where even small retail investors can open a Vanguard account overnight and invest in government debt that pays positive rates. So now to be honest, yeah. No, go ahead, Professor. What I'm particularly concerned about, and I don't hear uh, it being spoken about enough in the news, is essentially there is someone on the other end of these interest rate hedges. So the interest rate derivatives market is the most liquid market in the world, essentially. So presumably a lot of financial institutions and banks are hedging duration risk. But who is providing this hedge? So we know that this ended up very badly for AIG in 2008 because they were the sellers of insurance yep. for the mortgage-backed securities. If the risk is concentrated and there are a few entities actually providing the interest rate, um, essentially, um, hedge, then I think this will be the casualties this time. We don't know yet where the risk is concentrated, which is a big problem, I think, for regulators. Okay, so, Professor, just kind of getting back to the ECB here, I mean, the risk, you know, we've heard a lot of folks say, hey, the ECB is making a mistake here. They need the pause. Um, if and not necessarily just for the Credit Suisse reason, but for some of the reasons you outlined about, um, you know, there's some real stresses out there in the economy. And then the ECB really risks breaking the European economy and pushing into a, a deep recession. How viable are those risks, do you think? Well, it, it is true that people are arguing that they might be going at a pace that is too fast. I think they are doing the right thing to defend their credibility and whatever the issues there might be with the financial sector, which I don't, I, I do believe there will be issues as we discussed, they can handle them in different ways. So they have a lot of macroprudential tools. It's not just interest rates that they can employ in order to handle any instabilities in the financial sector. And it's almost like time to give the patient the essentially the medicine it needs, because the longer we postpone normalization, going back to normal interest rates, these adjustments has to take place at some point. Okay. Um, All right, we're going to just you know. have to leave it there, Dr. Uh, Dr. Vanya Stravyakeva, Professor of Economics at the London School of Business. We really appreciate getting her time. She's got some cutting edge research on the banking sector and it's just absolutely uh, at the forefront here as the European regulators and, and the Swiss regulators look about, you know, look at Credit Suisse and what to do there. All right, let's get back to the story that just broke over the last few minutes, uh, Wall Street Journal reporting. J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and others in talks to aid First Republic. I mean, this is so obvious. I, I can't imagine these bankers are actually going to get paid, this investment bankers for putting this deal to together. I could do this. Um, but let's bring in some of our banking experts, Herman uh, Chang and Arnold Kakuda. Arnold covers the uh, credit side and, and Herman kind of more on the equity side for – so we got you covered when it comes to these banks. Uh, Her Herman – to me, what do you make of this news? It kind of makes complete sense to me. This is an, I would think, and if they're going to put capital in or outright buy parts or all of, that seems like an easy deal to do. Yeah, I think so. Um, we still think FRC, First Republic, is a really strong franchise with uh, a lot of wealth management assets that are attractive to a potential buyer. And uh, really, it, it's been sucked into the vortex with, with some of the uncertainty that that proliferated with SVB and Signature. But the capital infusion news is definitely great news for, for the bank and management. So we're, we're looking to hear more on that front. 
All right, Arnold, come on in here. We just had Allison Williams on uh, in the last hour. We're talking about this deal, and she said, look, this isn't an acquisition. This is a lifeline, a lifeline that might not help the stock and bond investors. Well, is it going to help the bond investors at all? Do they care? Well, I mean, in terms of the, um, you know, we had some big uh, downgrades yesterday um, from like, a, you know, A minus, triple B plus to, you know, high yield. Yeah. Big deal. But but they only had like, 800 million of bonds. This is what, and that, so. this is what you call a fallen angel. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it, relatively speaking, it's, it's, it's pretty small and they have like, about like three and a half billion of preferred. So uh, I, th- I think the, the, the risk is contained for a lot of the investors, but definitely... Um, you know, markets moving on all these defaults happening really rapidly, Credit Suisse. But, um, you know, li- like you guys have been talking about, this is a great franchise. But I, th- I think, you know, the headlines could be misleading in the sense of, you know, the crown jewel here is this wealth management business. And so and, and, and from that aspect, you know, even a JP Morgan, who's kind of prohibited from buying any deposit franchises, they can kind of look at the uh, wealth franchise and say, hey, you know, Morgan Stanley. That's the crown jewel. You you can acquire you know wealth management assets. So um, and and that you know wealth management assets you know um, kind of spit off fees and and that kind of stable business is is great that anybody would love to have. We did have some or we're seeing some credit downgrades, Arnold. If I'm Moody's or Fitch or whatever it is, what are the two or three metrics I really look at when I think about moving my rating? Yeah, so I think you know looking at kind of what has transpired and the the risks of um, uninsured deposits possibly flowing out um, and, and based on kind of the fears that are out there right I think that that's what why they made these moves I guess preemptively for for um, for the public given kind of all the headlines out there um, you know I, I think looking at the stock reactions and and people you know seeing the uncertainty of you know what happened with the uninsured deposits of Silicon Valley Bank on, on Friday and Monday Right, you know, a lot of the damage may have already been done yeah. you know, at this point, and and so that's why when you see these news uh, things about like, oh, we tapped extra liquidity from the Fed, FDIC, oh, J.P. Morgan's uh, extending us uh, credit line, it's like, oh, oh my God, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's that whole thing of like, why are you saying that if there isn't a problem, right? right. So. Well, Herman, hop back on in here because we're talking about First Republic, obviously, in this capital infusion, but. Another peer that is trading the stock in terms of its trading tick by tick is Western Alliance. Uh, right. WAL Frokes is the ticker there. Uh, this is the company that recently got a 5.3% stake from Ken Griffin of Citadel that mm-hmm. we know, which in its own ways, its own capital infusion. What kind of numbers are we looking at here? I mean, Allison was very careful about saying, look, First Republic is not being acquired yet. right. right. Will it be? Are we looking for a potential stake still? Or is this kind of lifeline going to be enough? Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question at this point. Does the stake uh, by potentially J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley stabilize the market fears and stabilize the deposit outflow? Uh, if those two things happen, the, then you know that that would be great news. Uh, in terms of Western Alliance, it's another bank that operates in in the Western part of the United States, and uh, they have branches in California, in, in Arizona, and Nevada, um, and does have some exposure to the venture and startup community, but it's very small relative to what SVB did, which is the entirety of their business. So they, they are unfortunately lumped into the same situation um, and not having some of the uh, duration risk that, that SVB had. So there, there's unfortunately, they, they get thrown into the mix. All right, I'm going to throw this out for either of you two or both of you, whatever you want to do. I could care less. All I want to – because I'm trying to figure out, and I think a lot of investors are trying to figure out 
how systemic is this bank issue? We're all still scarred from 2008 mm-hmm. um, when everybody got pulled into it. When the Fed raises rates by like 500 basis points within a year, what does that mean for a bank? Sure. Um, what's it mean for a bank is that some banks get caught off sides. They weren't expecting such a rapid rise in rates, and they get caught off sides. What's it mean to get caught off side? You purchase securities or you do loans at a very low rate environment okay. and aggressively. And when rates rise, the value of those assets decline. And when there's a loss in confidence in a bank, that can just spur a lot of uncertainty. The market, you know, the share price come, you know, declines. And that's really essentially what happened with SVB. All right, we'll hop back on in here, uh, Arnold, and, and talk to us a little bit about where we go from here. I mean, you already mentioned that we uh, have seen this wave of downgrades, uh, these wave of kind of distress for some some of these banks. Are you seeing this show up in, say, the hedges or the insurance, the CDSs against some of these banks? Well, I mean, I, I think um, we, we've seen spreads widen first on this SVB and then yeah. uh, Credit Suisse, you know, a lot, lot more. And, yeah. and, you know, one metric we look at kind of in, in, in the corporate bond space is, you know, the financials. How do they trade versus the overall corporate bond index? Sure. And, um, you know, they, they had wind out in 2022 until October, and then we rallied back almost to flat. And, and then, obviously, now, now they're trading about 25 wider <laughs> again. But I, I think it's going to be tough for the financials to kind of regain that, you know, unless the markets really calm down. Um, I, I think it's going to be tough, you know, for the financials to kind of tighten back up again compared to the yeah. overall index, given kind of the, the default risk, which is real. Yeah. So we were talking about systemic risk broadly, but let's talk about the bond space specifically. In terms of contagion, in terms of trading and sympathy, are you seeing the Credit Suisse situation bleed into uh, kind of the regional bank situation? Because in my mind, there are two separate issues. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, so... You know, with the regional bank stuff, I think, you know, for the select regional banks that are having issues, um, you know, it was like, okay, maybe the, the bigger U.S. banks, the biggest U.S. banks like the JPMs, B of A's, that's kind of like a safe haven. But then when you deal with Credit Suisse and kind of the interconnectedness to the counterparties and all this and that, then it's like, okay, well, well then the bigger banks are kind of more exposed to that. Yeah. Although we haven't really seen it in the pricing yet. You know, if something were to happen, I think, you know, that's where you're going to be like, hmm, you know, who has kind of the most ties to kind of a you know, global systemically important entity? Oh, it might be the trading desks and, you know, they might be counterparts here and there, although at least Credit Suisse, you know, they, they had been kind of shrinking their trading port, you know, platform. Right. So um, maybe the risks are more contained there. But if, but if anything, you know, you got to look at start looking at the biggest banks again in terms of kind of the systemic contagion risks from yeah. the Credit Suisse. And on the regional side, the, the contagion and the systemic risks and the interconnectivity really isn't there. So, so that risk should be off the table on the regional bank side. So, Herman, on the regional bank side, if I were an analyst and I know about, you know, 15 minutes of experience in this um, – what percentage of a bank's deposits are insured on average? Yeah, it really runs the gamut. Um, so for, for and I can just screen on that, right? Yeah, you can, you can screen on that. You have to dig deep into the regulatory filings, but you could theoretically do it um, because I know you're a smart person. Um, I would say that it runs the gamut. SBB was about 5%. Uh, signature was about 10%. So you want, as an investor, I want 
as high a percentage as possible. Correct, because okay. and that they would were low be, because they had these big deposits well right. above two hundred. Big commercial 000. deposits. Gotcha. Okay, and, and you want the learning here? <laughs> yeah, he's got fifteen minutes. I got ten. Together, it's twenty-five. <laughs> exactly. So you want them uh, high but uninsured how about deposits. Your, your former employer, M mm-hmm. and T Bank. Mm-hmm. What was their insured deposit? It's roughly? more about the fifty percent or, high, or yeah. around that level. Yep. See, that's what I'm looking for. See, why can't I just screen on that? I'm sure I can on the Bloomberg terminal. And I buy the good ones and I sell the bad ones. That sounds like a very uh, good idea. And, but <laughs> I presume that if I, with Silicon Valley Bank, I'm willing to take that deposit risk. I just called it deposit risk. I don't know what you guys call it. Why do I take that deposit risk? Because you were not expecting a deposit flight because you know a week ago, the strength of the institution was the venture capital relationships and the startup relationships that became a weakness when there was a loss in confidence boy i i i could now be a bank's analyst there i think i've learned so much (laughs) schwab trading is now powered by ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds go deeper with think or swim the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at schwab Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Paul Sweeney here with Kriti Gupta. Matt Miller uh, out today. We've been focusing on uh, testimony from Secretary General, uh, Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen. Uh, she is testifying in front of Congress. We started off the day with uh, some news out of the um, European Central Bank uh, raising the benchmark rate by fifty basis points, and there were calls for maybe a pause, maybe just a twenty-five percent, uh, twenty-five basis point increase, if for no other reason than uh, to just cool the markets, given some of the turmoil we've seen in there with the banking sector. Let's go back to Europe and get a sense of kind of how the market's dealing with it today. Marianne Squidell, founder of Bougeville Consulting, uh, joins us. Marianne, I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of what you believe, or, or, or kind of your takeaways from. Uh, Christine Lagarde's 50 basis point move at the ECB. Yes. Well, you know, I've been reading, I used to work as a regulator a very long time ago. And what I'm hearing from my previous colleagues is that the regulators are quite confident that the banking sector is a little bit stronger in Europe because they didn't relax the rules, you know, on mid-sized lenders. Um, So, and the stress test, they're confident that they are strong enough. And so I think there's, there's this sense in Europe at the moment um, I think that's one. That's my take on it. O- obviously, nobody knows what's going to happen, and it's obviously a question of confidence at this stage. So, you know, 
the backdrop of some concerns, obviously some major concerns at Credit Suisse, how do you think that played into um, the ECB's decision here? Because there are a lot of people saying, boy, if you take a look at some of the potential wider risk from continued challenges at Credit Suisse, that in and of itself might suggest that they pause. So I don't know, but you know, in the UK, we still have this memory of like there was even before the financial the financial crisis in two thousand and seven, there was a run on a bank which I don't know in the US if you heard much about it. It was Northern Rock. It was a big lender, and we saw in the streets of London people lining up to get their money back, and and that was something major. So the governments in the UK, in the European Union, it's maybe a bit different, but in the UK, which at the time was part of the European Union, obviously. Um, so in the UK, you know, the government um, uh, um, worked throughout the weekend. There's HSBC that bought um, um, SVB for one pound. And um, I have a friend who um, who invests in a startup. The startup decided to stay a client of SVB. And they, they feel from a client's perspective, a deposit taker's perspective, they are feeling fairly reassured. And the sentiment at the moment is not as panicky as as you know it may be so that may have played a part obviously in the decision of the central bank so marianne you know i'm a former employee at credit suisse so i'm paying uh very close attention there um yeah and i and i do and i a lot of things that i think a lot of us learned during the uh, the financial crisis is particularly for these investment banks is counterparty risk and that concept that boy if the market doesn't have confidence in your institution, it is game over. I don't care who you are and what the name is on the door. How do you assess the, that risk for Credit Suisse at this point? Hmm. That's a very good question. That's, it's really too early to tell, I think. Um, it's, it's a very good question. Um, we, we, we don't know. That's, that's the answer. Um, yeah, right. We don't know. All right. So what's the next step here for the, the, the central bank, do you believe, um, at, uh, in Frankfurt? Um, well, I, I don't know what they're going to decide, of course. But at the moment, everybody is kind of weighing up the pros and cons, you know, of um, what's going to happen. But as you said, it's a question of confidence. Right. If, you know, if depositors uh, stay put, you know, there's the risk. Uh, the inflation becomes obviously more of a priority. Otherwise, it would be, you know, the confidence of, of deposit takers that, that is a priority. All right, Marianne, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate getting some of your time. Marianne Scordell, founder of Bougeville uh, Consulting. We started off the day we want to get back to. We started off the day with the ECB, really focusing on um, Christine Lagarde. The ECB, they stayed true to what they were saying, uh, 50 basis point move. So whenever we get news out of the the Bank of England, or the ECB. There are two people we have to talk to. Marcus Ashworth, boom, we ticked that off this morning on Bloomberg Surveillance, and John Authors. These are two cranky Brits who, if they've got something to say, they don't mind saying it, folks. John, what do you make of Christine Lagarde, that European Central Bank's 50 basis points move? Don't we have the risk of a recession? Don't we have a big bank that's in trouble? What's going on? Well, I'm not feeling that cranky just at this moment, <laughs> just to just to get that on the record. Um, and it's also rather wonderful just watching Bloomberg Technology on Bloomberg TV at the moment, where yes. for some reason we have two cranky Brits introducing yes. a show about American Curmudgeonly, let's go Yes, curmudgeonly, yeah, I like that. I like that. I, I, I might go with being a, a curmudgeon, if not a crank. Right. Um, <laughs> in terms of what the ECB has done, they have 
you know, they have a, a dilemma and they've decided to go all out on the belief, A, that inflation really matters and it isn't beaten yet, and B, and this is the critical one, that you can separate the uh, functions of fighting inflation and maintaining financial stability. Um, certainly, it ought to be the case, if Credit Suisse's issue and of the, the different banks that have fallen um, in this country, is, uh, if that issue is merely liquidity as opposed to solvency then they should be safe, they should be within their rights to carry on tightening rates. That said, the fact I, I personally gasped when the news <laughs> came this morning, uh, and I think plenty of other people have done as well, it is pretty seriously courageous that they've pressed ahead with this. Um, they are very strongly signalling that they don't think the banking sector is in that much trouble um and you know courageous is not always something you want to be <laughs> as a central banker but Just what measure do they come up with that conclusion that the banking sector is not in that much of a crisis well if you look at um priced book multiples which i did in my column last night um for the euro the eurozone banks yeah they're they're trading below book, but they've been trading below book value for 15 years. Uh, and there's really nothing particularly crisis-ridden or scary about the trading in those banks. In fact, in the, the actual share price, given that the, the greatest risk here is buying the stock in one of these banks rather than um, uh, taking out a deposit. Plainly, shareholders are at much greater risk of being wiped out than... Uh, than depositors. Uh, oddly enough, we are still not showing as much stress as either 08 or 11-12, which for the European banks was actually a, in many ways a bigger deal than uh, than 08 was. Um, and I think in 08 we all became experts on the, the TED spread. Can you yes. ex- give us the dummies explanation for right, that? The TED spread, the TED spread <laughs> where um, that is. It's, it, the TED spread is uh, the comparison between uh, the short-term rates at which banks lend to each other. Still, um, although LIBOR has had an interesting history in the the years since the global financial crisis, it's what we think of as LIBOR. It's the rate at which they lend to each other compared to the rate you can get on uh, T-bills. Um, so generally those two numbers are very close to each other and the banks are very slightly higher. When the spread rises, it indicates that banks really have a problem trusting each other. The TED spread at the moment is still unremarkable. The banks don't have any great degree of distrust with each other. There is a danger in taking 08, which most of us who lived through 08 find it difficult not to take 08 as a basis <laughs> of comparison. What happened to the TED spread, what happened to banks trust in each other in 08 was extreme because we've, we've gone through all this, just nobody knew who was sitting on the bad loans. They didn't even know whether they themselves were sitting on the bad loans and trust was completely destroyed. There is nothing like 08 on the picture. The possibility that this is uh, a liquidity 
uh, problem that will require banks to put up with far less in the way of profits and will be part of a slowdown in the economy, that's a really serious issue. Um, There really shouldn't be um, any risk of a true repetition of 2008. And again, I'm startled that they had the courage to go through with this, but perhaps the ECB view is by being deviated from the path they'd clearly spelt out before they would have increased the risks that people would say okay the ecb is running scared they must know something we should run for the hills john you mentioned uh your or referenced mm. your uh opinion piece and folks you can find that at bloomberg.com slash opinion or opin go on the terminal john's uh piece is entitled move along there's no crisis to see here yeah. um how Slightly about, nerve-wracking headline, that exactly, one, but anyway, yes. Exactly. Yes, yes. Um, here in the United States, I would say the consensus is soft landing, no landing, something on the, those lines, probably not a hard landing. Is it the same in Europe, would you say? Or it seems a little bit more pre- precarious there. I, I'm not sure the consensus is quite so clearly that we get a, uh, a soft landing here that, as it was a couple of weeks ago, and... Uh, if it is, I don't quite know why people are expecting rates to, to come down quite as aggressively as they do. In Europe, um, the situation is very much murkier because of this big extra factor of the energy crisis. Yep. Um, so at one point, that was a big reason to expect a really serious slowdown in economic activity this year, a, a perfectly reasonable one. And because the... Uh, the weather in Europe turns out to have been, I gather, two standard deviations better than you would normally <laughs> expect. A really mild winter that's had much less of a drastic impact than would have been expected. Um, so the risk of a hard landing has moved out of the... Well, it's, sorry, it hasn't gone away, but it yep. has reduced very significantly... And that, in turn, has increased the pressure on the ECB to be somewhat more hawkish yep. Yep. than they were previously setting out to be. That, but that certainly that energy factor plus the way that the the, um, the European uh, financial system works through banks more than it does through markets, and its banks have never really totally recovered from what happened to it at the turn of the last decade. That that does make the situation very different. Usually, it's the Fed that goes first, right? I mean, the, the, the timing of the calendar. This uh, has the ECB going first. Do we? Does Jay Powell take any cue from Christine Lagarde this time around? It makes it harder for him to pause altogether, I think. But we don't know what's going to happen in the next. You know, we've still got <laughs> we've still got four and a half days before before he he uh, they, the the FOMC has to make its decision. Absent a significant new um, banking issue flaring up somewhere and I have no opinion on what (laughs) the probability of that is but absent that I think 25 basis points hike next week is very likely the the, the, uh, uh, we don't need to get into all of it the data does not suggest that that 
inflation on its own is is still too high for them to uh, to stop hiking. Then the uh, the folks that are pricing in cuts for next year uh, for this year. I'm sorry, the back half of this year. Again, that's what we see on the Bloomberg Terminal of the Futures market. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, what do you make of that in well, 30 seconds? Like I said, that's why I'm nervous about your okay. saying that soft landing is still the, is still the uh, dominant scenario. If, if we need to cut rates the way the market currently implies before the end of the year, that implies a landing that is somewhat okay. hard. Yep. And obviously there's a risk of that, and a banking crisis would deliver that. It's still not clear to me that we have as serious a banking crisis as something. All right. Very, very good. As always, we got Marcus Ashworth. we got John Authors. we got the Euro um, and UK covered. That's how I like to think about it. John Authors, thanks so much for joining us here from Bloomberg Opinion. He works on the markets team, does all that kind of uh, great stuff. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So he gets that gold star for showing up as opposed to phoning it in. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.